Um, so now we're going to transition. We're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible. Uh, or if you don't have a Bible, we've got black Bibles under the chairs. You're welcome to keep those. We'd love for you to have your own Bible. You can take that home. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. So in the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's a third gospel, Luke chapter 11. We're in this series that we've called Jesus Confronts. Jesus confronts. We've been looking at these chapters, chapter 10 through 18, where we see Jesus, kind of at the end of 9, it said he turned his face towards Jerusalem. So there's this like seriousness where he's confronting more. There's going to be more conflict with the Jewish leaders. There's also going to be more confrontation of the disciples' immaturity. So we need to listen to these things as well. We're going to see Jesus confront our own immaturity. We're going to see Jesus confront religious legalism again and again, week after week, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards his death and resurrection. So this week, we're in chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. Verses 37 through 54, we're calling it Point People to God. Point people to God. You can find this on page 869 in the Black Bibles. Page 869, point people to God. And if you're paying really close attention to the series, you'll notice I just skipped about a chapter. Did you notice that? Anybody anybody careful? I'm saving that for New Year's time. So some of those texts, I just feel like it'll be really good, like starting off the new year, sitting in the disciplines of grace, because we've got the Mary and Martha story where he teaches about sitting at Jesus' feet. And we've got the prayer story where it talks about how gracious God is to us in prayer. So I'm saving that for New Year's messages. We'll still get to it. So we're just skipping about one chapter's worth of stuff. And for the next several weeks, we'll keep going in order. So chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, point people to God. He's confronting the Jewish legalism here. He's confronting the leaders that are pointing people the wrong way. Um, Now, 20 years ago, I was coaching my son's soccer team. Uh, He was about five. I think it was like a five-year-old and a four-year-old soccer team. Any of you ever coached little kids that age in like t-ball, soccer, anything? Okay. Now, in soccer, I don't know about t-ball, baseball, I never played that. But in soccer, you're supposed to kick the ball in the goal, right? And the other team is supposed to kick the ball into this goal. And and the primary thing that a coach does with four- and five-year-olds is say, no, don't go that way, go this way, right? Like that was the main thing I did over and over again. We weren't doing a lot of technical drills, right? We were just like, go that way, go that way. Like just over and over again, I was pointing the team to their goal. Often in the text, Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to say, you're, you're scoring goals for the wrong team. Go that way, right? And what he's going to be talking about here is how we should point people to God. We often want to point people to ourself, to our own flesh. Say, look at me, look at how awesome I am. And that's what the Jewish leaders were doing. They were saying, look at me, look at me. And Jesus was like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to point people to God. Point people to him. He's, he's the goal. It's his goodness. It's his grace. It's his glory. It's his justice that we are to point people to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few of the first verses and a few of the last verses to kind of give you the bookends of the section, and then we'll read the rest of it as we move through it this morning. But just to start off, just to frame it, verses 37 through 42, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then I want to skip down to verses 52 through 54. So verse 52, woe to you lawyers, teachers of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves and you hindered those who are entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So as I said, this section is things are heating up, right? There's more conflict brewing. Jesus is confronting their corruption. He's confronting their legalism. He's confronting where the Jewish leaders are going wrong. And he's also confronting the disciples' immaturity as well. We study and read the Bible every week because we believe all of it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And we want to sit as learners at his feet. We want to listen to him. We also believe that his Holy Spirit is what empowers us to actually hear what he has to say, to hear his voice. So I want to pray that his spirit would be with us this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would open up our our minds and our hearts to you, that we would hear you, that you would be with us. We pray knowing that you're gracious, that you love to give good gifts to your children, as you said earlier in chapter 11. So we pray expectantly, you're gracious, you're kind, you're a loving father. Give us your spirit. Give us your word. Help us to hear you. Help us to see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move through the text, um, there's a lot of condemnation, uh, a lot of negative stuff, right? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And I learned in preaching, it's helpful to give you like a goal to shoot for, right? Uh, So that's the big idea. The the big idea is point people to God. Um, When I I first preached this text 20 years ago, and the way I preached it 20 years ago was don't be a false teacher. That was my way of preaching it 20 years ago. But, but the positive idea is not just don't be bad, right? But actually point people to God. That's what, that's what we should do. And so I was searching through different texts, and I felt like it's really helpful to grab hold of this one particular text that I'm sure you've heard of before. It's Micah 6.8 as a positive direction for pointing people to God. Micah 6.8. Does that ring a bell? My, Micah 6.8 says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. What does God require of you? That's what he requires. Do justice, love, mercy. Some translations say love, kindness. I'm going to say love, grace. It can be translated in many different uh, ways, it has said. So do justice, love, grace, and walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants of, of us. And when we hear Jesus here confronting the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes, teachers of the law, all these different Jewish leaders, He's, he's kind of standing and speaking in the tradition of the prophets that had condemned God's leaders in the past. So there's a, another parallel text to Micah 6.8 as well. It's Zechariah 7.9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. There's many other places in the prophets that speak like this. And Jesus is saying the same kind of thing. He's saying, no, not that way. Go this way. Point people to God, not to yourself. And so we've got three points. Do justice, love, grace, walk humbly 
with God. And I just want to remind you that this is not a lesson just for Jewish leaders. This is not a lesson uh, for teachers and lawyers and scribes and Pharisees, right? Because we're not that, right? That's not who we are. But anyone who, who claims the name of Christ, we should represent God. Like, that's our job. If we belong to God, we should point people to God. And I would say, even if you're not a believer, we believe that God has created us. God has made us in his image, and that's our whole purpose. Even if you don't know Jesus, surprise. That's, that's your purpose, is to point people to God and how good he is. So number one, do justice. Do justice. We see this in verses 37 through 42. Uh, Verses 37 through 42, do justice. And just as an aside, uh, justice and righteousness, these words are used interchangeably in Scripture. Justice and righteousness are used interchangeably in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. And those sound like very different words to us in English. Uh, Often we think of justice as more of like an official term, and we think of righteousness as more of a personal term. But in the Bible, these things are always mingled together. So point one, uh, can you put that up on the screen for me? Point one is do justice. Luke 11, verses 37 through 42. Um, So throughout the Old Testament, God's people are to live out his justice, right? They're called to be a kingdom of priests and kings that show his holiness. Uh, They're placed strategically at the crossroads of every ancient empire that's ever existed. And God says, hey, when when the people march through, you're going to testify to my goodness, and you're going to show them my ways. You're going to show them my holiness, my righteousness, my justice. This has always been what God's people were supposed to do. And Jesus finds the Jewish leaders now in the first century being obsessed with one particular thing. And what is that? They're obsessed with being really, really clean being really, really clean, washing their hands again and again. I I just want to be clear. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase, cleanliness is close to godliness. Have you ever heard that before? Jesus is not saying cleanliness is bad. He's just saying it's not the same thing as godliness. Like I'd say, yeah, cleanliness might be close to godliness, right? It's It's a good idea. If you're new to the church, we like it when people wash their hands. We love that, okay? If you start serving on one of our teams, we'll probably encourage you to practice basic hygiene, brush your hair, right? Take a bath, wash your hands. We have soap and sinks in all of our bathrooms, right? So we're all about that. I just don't want to be confused here. We're all about cleanliness. The problem is they had taken the ceremonies of cleanliness, which were to point people to God, and they kept adding to it and adding to it. And they added new ceremonies and new ceremonies and new ceremonies. They they were making it even bigger than God originally meant it to be, right? Because God gave all these ceremonies at the temple where they were supposed to act out these dramas, demonstrations of uh, God's holiness and our sinfulness and our need for him to cleanse us. So they had ceremonial washings they were commanded to do, but Jesus is saying, "You've, you've taken this too far. And just to be clear, Jesus often would partake in their traditions. So we have to kind of clarify in our minds, there are three categories here. There's biblical morality, like Ten Commandments, moral law. That's the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament. We are still bound by the same moral law. And then there's the ceremonial law, which was different for the nation of Israel than it is for us now under the New Covenant. That has changed. If you're you're unsure that, we can talk about it more. But all of Galatians and Hebrews in the New Testament addresses this pretty clearly. So we're no longer under those ceremonies. But they were back here, right? So, so Jesus is still living under this law, but the Pharisees, they added even more to those ceremonies. 
they took those ceremonies and they said, we're going to do even more washings and show how awesome we are. It had become a display of their righteousness, where they were just adding and adding layers and layers to the law. And so Jesus would often partake in their traditions, but here he purposefully didn't do it. See, see, look at the text. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Jesus did that on purpose. It's not like Jesus was like, oh man, I'm sorry, I forgot to wash my hands. It's not like that, right? There are just these layers and layers of ceremonial washings and more washings and more washings, and Jesus was like, no, I'm going I'm to make this into a teaching lesson here. And he purposefully did not engage in their tradition. So we have to clarify, because we're, we're a pretty modern church. Some would say we're kind of in the middle. Some would say we lean modern, right? And so in, in this circle, you might think that we hate tradition. We don't hate tradition, right? We have to be careful as followers of Christ that we neither fall for one extreme or the other. One extreme is tradition's always right. And Jesus is clearly teaching here, no, sometimes tradition is wrong and it points people away from God. But the other extreme is to take this and to say, see, tradition's always wrong. We should never be traditional, right? And that's not what Jesus is saying either. How do you decide if a tradition is a good tradition or a bad tradition? Well, like if it points people to God, if it, if it helps you love Jesus, if, if it helps you honor his name, then it's a good tradition. So as a church, we, we pick and choose from the traditions of the church over thousands of years. And some of them were like, hey, we're going to do that because we think it helps us to remember Jesus and, and follow him. Tradition's kind of like a curriculum, right? We pick different curriculums in the elementary ministry and the different Bible studies. Sometimes you have a better curriculum, sometimes you have a worse, and you use the best one in the moment to help you to follow Jesus. And tradition is like that. And you have to weigh it according to the scriptures. And here Jesus is saying, no more. I'm not going to do this because you guys are going off into the deep end here. You're missing the point. They're obsessed with being clean. So look at the rest of it. After the Pharisee is astonished, verse 39, he says this. Where's 39? There it is. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's really important to distinguish between external cleansing and true heart cleansing. Jesus is going to challenge us and the Pharisees to come back to this again and again. Is your heart clean? That's the important thing. Being clean symbolically Maybe that kind of tradition or some kind of ceremony where you celebrate being clean can be helpful. You sing about it. You have a little cleansing dance, right? Maybe that'll help you. But the important thing is your heart. Is your heart clean? That's the important part. In the Old Testament, again, again, we're told you shouldn't just have a circumcised body. You should have a circumcised heart, right? Another cleansing ritual. This comes up again and again throughout Scripture. And so Jesus challenges them on this. You're full of greed and wickedness. Verse 40, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Which do you care about more? Do you care about what people see or your own heart before God? Verse 41, give as alms those things that are within you and behold, everything is clean for you. So he's saying give from the heart. Give from the heart and everything will be clean for you. The heart is what matters. Does your heart belong to you? to God. And then he contrasts that kind of giving with their giving. Look at verse 42. How are they giving? But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue 
and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. He's saying, you're being so careful to tithe from your herb garden, but you're not giving from your heart. You're taking great pains to point at yourself and say, look at me, I've washed my hands ten times, and I give from my herbs. He's like, what if you actually had a clean heart and a giving heart? We talk about this with generosity at our church, because many churches today teach a a cultic sort of teaching that says, if you give, then God owes you something. Now, to be clear, the Bible teaches that there is a blessing in generosity. There's a blessing in being clean. There's a blessing in obedience, right? It's good in and of itself. But the New Testament is very clear that we should give generously from the heart as a cheerful giver because we believe that God has given to us. So we would say the same thing to you about giving to the church, giving to the poor in the community. We'd say give because Jesus has given to you. Don't give because you're like putting coins in a vending machine and then demanding blessings from God. Don't give like you're whacking a pinata trying to beat the blessings out of him, right? You give because he's given you Jesus. You give because God has been generous to you. And the Pharisees didn't understand this. They're doing things to to point to themselves. And you might ask, well, well, what about justice? Because this doesn't seem like injustice. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus says in Luke 20, 47, that the Pharisees, the scribes, devour widows' houses and then for a pretense make long prayers. There's many other verses like this as well, but I thought this one was helpful because it's in the Gospel of Luke. We see similar stuff in other places. The idea here is this. The the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, teachers of the law, they're pointing at themselves, doing lots of ritual holiness, but then they're actually hurting poor people. They're actually taking advantage of poor people. They're doing whatever it takes to get ahead economically, oppressing those that are weaker than them. And Jesus says, this is not right. You need to actually do justice. You need to actually love people. And then those ceremonial things, those, those will take care of themselves. There's a parallel to this combination uh, in Matthew 23. It's kind of confusing to me that he talks about tithing mint and rue. Anybody know what rue is? Anybody here? I'm going to come talk to you afterwards. Okay, one of you. You know rue. I don't know what rue is. I've never heard of it before. Another one? Okay. Apparently, it's another herb. In Matthew 23, it's a little easier to understand because he uses herbs that we're more familiar with in the modern world. So Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you fakers. He says, you tithe. Uh, where did I? I lost it. Where is it? You tithe mint and dill and cumin. I've heard of all of those. Okay, Mint and dill and cumin but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying, you should still give, right? I'm not condemning tithing. What does tithing even mean that's giving a tenth, right? So this is this pattern in the Old Testament. People of God give away a tenth of what they have, right? They give away a tenth Uh, to make sure that the Bible is taught. I like that because I'm paid by your giving to teach the Bible, right? And then they would also give away money to take care of the poor. And so there's just this pattern of the people of God working their jobs, being honest, doing the right thing, and then giving away some of their money. And he's saying, yeah, tithing's great, but make sure you're actually just and you love people. That's more important. The weightier matters of the law. It's actually more important. 
and ceremonial things or these technical things. We have to hear this ourselves. Um, Clearly, God cares about justice. He doesn't want us to take advantage of the poor. And we can get confused about this because there's so many different ways of, of hearing this in the modern world. I was just listening to Jeremiah kind of through my Bible reading plan, finishing up Jeremiah this week, a couple of days ago, and I was like, ah, this is, this is the kind of thing that Jesus was condemning. So in Jeremiah 34, uh, there, Jeremiah is condemning the people of God because they had decided to follow the law, which said you should always let slaves go free in the seventh year unless they want to stay with you as a paid servant, right? So just as an aside, um, there have been many Christians throughout history who have tried to justify slavery with the Bible. Just so you know, those people were wrong because the Bible teaches something like indentured servitude, not chattel slavery, where if you're a certain type of person, you just get to be property forever. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says, no, set them free. After seven years, they've worked it off. And then if they want to stay with you, then they're a paid servant. You pierce their ear, right? So there's a whole mechanism for this in the law. And in Jeremiah 34, they had set their slaves free and then they changed their mind and they went back and kidnapped them again and made them slaves. And this is what God says about this freedom that they had granted and then taken back. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming freedom, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you freedom to the sword, freedom to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. This is what Jeremiah said right before the exile takes place. The Pharisees thought they were the ones making all that right. And yet they were swallowing. They were devouring widows' houses. They were taking advantage of the poor in parallel ways to what their forefathers had done. There's a ministry that I've supported over the years called the International Justice Mission, and I love it because they actually set slaves free. There's slavery happening all over our world. Um, And this ministry comes in, uh, and they work in these countries where slavery is illegal. It's just nobody's doing anything about it. So you've got these lawyers and former cops and investigators coming in, building a case to set slaves free, actual slaves, and and sexual slavery and and child uh, labor slavery and all these different situations, setting real slaves free. It's a beautiful ministry, great thing. And when I first heard Gary Haugen speak on the subject, it just inspired me, and I was excited to jump on board with the ministry. And one of the things that he said was really convicting. This I heard him speak 20 years ago. Um, what he said, maybe even 25 years ago, he said, I'm afraid the American church is the most powerful group of Christians that the world has ever seen. But he said, I'm afraid that the American church has become like these bodybuilders that spend all this time building up big muscles so they can just pose in the mirror. So they can pose on stage, but they're not actually helping anybody. And this was before social media. I think posing has gotten even worse now, right? So I was thinking about this. I wanted to find a picture of bodybuilders for you. It's like, well, you've seen that, right? You have social media. Um, and so I found, I think, the, the positive, right? Instead of someone who's building muscles just to pose, and just to be clear, if you're a bodybuilder, we love you, God bless you. Um, I'm just challenging you to use your muscles for good, not just for posing. Okay, posing's fine, but also use it for good, right? So I grabbed a picture here of some Navy SEALs doing their workout. They're not posing, right? They probably don't even know the picture is being taken. They're probably about to lose consciousness, right? They're working out so that they can do justice. And that's, I think that's a good distinction, right? Are you, are you doing your spiritual practices 
to look holy or to be holy, right? Like, like do you actually want to help people love and justice or just to like feel better about yourself, pat yourself on the back, right? That's, that's the question. And we all, we all fall into this. We all need to hear this. It's not just these bad Jewish leaders over here in the first century. We, we can all fall into this. We should give to actually love, to actually show justice to others. Psalm 146 says, He upholds the cause of the oppressed. That's God. God upholds the cause of the oppressed. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Um, so just to clarify, I do think there's a theological difference between absolute justice and mercy. We talk about that a lot, right? Between what is right and charity, there's a distinction there. But we have to be careful because when the Scripture talks about doing justice in the Old Testament, it talks about the economic system in the Old Testament. It was a care for yourself and your own family and set aside a little bit of the friends for the poor. It was both and. There was charity mixed in their system of justice. And so people today critique us talking about justice as having anything to do with helping the weak. But the Old Testament said helping the weak was part of the system of justice. And so we can, we can fight over percentages for sure, but, but part of our life needs to be given over to that. There needs to always be a fringe. I think we've got a couple of principles that are helpful. You've got tithing, setting aside a tenth, and then you've got gleaning. And so farmers, gleaning was setting aside the corners of your crops so that the poor could come and have some of it. So you weren't trying to like solve every poor person's problem in the whole world all at once. You're just setting aside some of what you had to engage in the poor and the weak around you. So be careful, don't fall for the extremes, right? There's two godless extremes offered to us again and again, Marxism and libertarianism, both created by atheists. One extreme says, you know, it's absolutely just take care of yourself. Don't care about anybody else. The other extreme says there is no self. There's, there's only the community and, and everybody should be equal. The Old Testament doesn't really go for either of those extremes. There's a kind of focus on being honest, working hard, taking care of your own small business, and then leaving a fringe where you give and you're generous to the poor and the weak and, and the needy. There's three categories that we're always to watch out for in any society, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Those are the three categories. Those are the three categories of people who will be taken advantage of because they're weaker, because they don't have as many resources. So there's more of a chance of injustice being perpetrated against them. So as a church, we always need to be aware. As God's people, they were always to be aware. So survey the New Testament. You'll see stuff about working hard. Those who don't work shouldn't eat. Clearly, there's like responsibility. Take care of yourself. Great cross-references are Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3. But there's also part of justice is caring for the weak and the outsider. So James says in James 1.27, if you want to do true ceremonial religion, this is my paraphrase. He's using one of the most ceremonial words for religion in ancient Greek. If you want to do true religious ceremony, he says, keep yourself holy personally. Be morally pure. That's going out of fashion in our culture. Be morally pure and also take care of orphans and widows in their distress. He says that's ceremonial purity. That's ceremonial religion. And we should be about that. We should care for outsiders. So here's a couple of just real practical ways to do this. Where are we on time? Okay, yeah, I'm running out of time. A uh, couple of practical things that you can do 
is in the foyer, we've got a Christmas tree, Christmas in July fundraiser for Foster Love Bell County. You can scan one of those ornaments or you can take one of those ornaments and you can give to them, a, a local ministry that tries to support actual orphans in the community. We always talk about Hope Pregnancy Center as well, another ministry you could volunteer with. They need volunteers to counsel and encourage people to keep a child and to honor life. And then I would also say, uh, look around you to see if there's a widow or a single mom close by. Is there a neighbor that's a widow or a single mom that you could look out for? Someone that you sit with at church? Um, I stand here because the church that I went to when I was a teenager looked out for my mom, who's a single mom. I mean, I'm not in prison today because the church cared for single moms. And that had a big impact on my life. And I'd say the church should still be about that today. We should still care for those that are struggling and show God's kindness to care about love and justice. Second point is we should love grace. So none of us can do justice perfectly. Scripture's clear about that. Um, No amount of doing justice can save us. We can't earn our way into God's good graces. We need his grace. The Hebrew word from Micah 6, 8 is chesed. You have to say when you say chesed. Uh, And that can be translated as kindness or mercy. Uh, Sometimes it's covenant faithfulness. I think grace is a good catch-all for this. It's, It's God doing good things for us that we don't deserve. We see it most clearly in Jesus. And so a lot of Christians like to use the acronym of spelling out grace for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That means we bring sin and disobedience to the table. And Jesus pays for that on the cross. And he gives us his his resurrection power. He gives us his perfect obedience. So here's the thing. If you love grace, if you trust in God's grace, when God looks at you, he sees you as pure, as, as beautiful, and as righteous as his very own son, Jesus. Love grace. It's the only place of hope for us. Sadly, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, did not love grace. In verse 45, it says, one of uh, the lawyers, the teachers of biblical law, answered him, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, yeah. That's my translation. He said, yeah. Verse 46, he said, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So, you're adding burdens. You're making the system of righteousness more complicated, more difficult. You're adding more hoops for people to jump through religiously to come close to God. You're saying, oh no, that's not enough. You got to do more. You got to do more. You got to do more. And you're not lifting a single finger to help with a burden. God is our burden bearer. I mean, that's what the cross is, is Jesus bearing the burden of our sin on the cross. And the whole Old Testament foreshadows this as well. It's not like it's some brand new surprise. They should have known this. That's Jesus' critique and the prophet's critique again and again. They're like, you should have known this. God always saved by grace. And then he said, now obey me because I've saved you by grace. You don't obey me to win grace. If you're earning grace, it's not grace. Grace is something given freely by God's covenantal love, his kindness, his mercy. So there adding burdens. They're making it harder. They're like doing things to say, we're going to make a really complicated system where we can be the winners. We see this in religion and in cults all the time. It's led by people that say, okay, here's all the rules. 
and all the rules happen to just be stacked where I look like I'm better than you, so I'll always be first class and you'll be second class, right? But in the grace system, it's not that way. We're all brothers and sisters. We're, we're all the same. We're all sinners, and we all need the grace of Jesus. And that makes us family. And we don't have classes and, and tiers of closer to God and less close to God. Um, one of my favorite illustrations of this is from the Olympics several years ago. In John 14, we're told by Jesus that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know the Father, look at Jesus. Look at his death and resurrection on the cross. Look at Jesus, then you'll know the character of God. And there's this great picture that shows the grace of the Father. Um, I have a picture here of Derek Redmond being supported uh, by his dad in the 1992 Olympics. Derek Redmond was running the 400 meters. Uh, he was he was one of those that we thought could win, right? He was doing really well. He worked out. He was really strong. And he had an injury, and he couldn't finish the race, right? He fell down, um, and his dad was in the stands. And when his dad saw him fall, his dad just jumps up and runs down and jumps over the railing. You're not supposed to do that in the Olympics. You'll get in trouble if you do that. But somehow they let him get by. I guess they knew he was his dad. And he goes down, and he picks his son up, and he helps him make it across the finish line. I think that's such a beautiful picture of how God bears our burden, how he helps us to finish the race. He, he didn't wait for us to get across the finish line. Then he said, okay, now you're good enough. You can be with me. He came to us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our pain, and in our shame, and he picks us up. And he says, we're going to finish together. God is walking with you. By his spirit, he shows that we can cry out, Abba, Father. He shows that what Jesus did on the cross is his true character. So we shouldn't be ashamed of grace. Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's the power of salvation for everybody. Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the non-religious, we all need grace. Grace isn't just something for those of us that have serious problems. Grace is something all of us need. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees. In verse 47, he goes on, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Now this feels like Jesus is being unfair, right? Because their ancestors had killed the prophets and they're trying to build a memorial. But Jesus is saying, do you see the pattern here? You're doing external things to win the praise of men, but you're not actually listening to God's grace. You're just doing the same thing. You're just as bad as them. You're building fancy memorials to try to cleanse yourself of it. You're trying to publicly show that you're on the good guy's team, but he's like, you're just the same as they are. Verse 49, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. From Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z. Abel wasn't uh, a technical prophet, right? But he spoke for God. And he was the first murder in Scripture. Abel to Zechariah. Zechariah, in, in their order of the Hebrew Bible at the end of Chronicles, was the last person to be killed. He sang from A to Z. From A to Z, you've always murdered the prophets. You've always murdered those that speak up about God's grace 
in His goodness. He says, you're doing the same thing. Let me paraphrase it this way. Jesus is saying that if we don't love grace, we're guilty of killing His messengers. If we keep pointing to us, instead of pointing to God's grace, we're killing His messengers. He's saying it's, it's the same thing. You're just as guilty as they were. Building a memorial doesn't cleanse you. It doesn't set you free. The message of grace is not a heavy burden. It is God lifting our burden. One of my favorite grace verses in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness, the justice of God. He gives us as a free gift of grace his very own righteousness. Um, old, old band from 40 years ago when I was a kid. Old Irish band wrote a, wrote a song called Grace. And they personify Grace as a woman. It says this, Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, she removes the stain. Grace, it's the name for a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. She travels outside of karma. She travels outside of karma. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Love that song. What is karma? Karma is an Eastern religious system of works righteousness. Of saying if we do enough, we can earn a better life. If we do bad things, we're earning a worse life. And the song says here, no, grace travels outside of karma. It goes beyond the system of works. It's something better where God does good works for us. So the question is, what are the systems of righteousness? As Colossians says, what are the systems of works that we've built in our life that are opposed to God's grace? I'm just going to ask you to like, just maybe bow your head or close your eyes for a minute. And think about that. Like, Lord, maybe ask the Lord privately, Lord, what are the things that I'm building that are contrary to your grace? Lord, am I, am I depending on money? And thinking that the more money I make, the more you'll be impressed with me or the more secure I'll, I'll be? Lord, am I depending on relationships? Or am I thinking that if I can construct the right relationships or have the right relationships, that, that then I'll be safe or I'll be blessed? Lord, what are the things I'm building in my life that are contrary to your grace? Lord, show me how I can trust you instead of those things. Show me how I can trust your grace. Look up for a second now. The hard thing about turning good things into idols is God doesn't want us to destroy those, right? Like you might have a significant relationship that you've made the center of your world instead of God's grace. Probably if it's a healthy relationship or if it's a relationship at all, you need to still love that person or honor that person, right? They just can't be your savior. Money, right? Like we, t- we take money, it's, it's a good thing, a gift from God, and we might see that as our source of, of security and salvation. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to get rid of all money all the time. You need to learn how to put Jesus above that, right? And so pray that, that God would show his grace to you in such a way that, that whatever gifts he's given you, you can use for his glory. You can use to, to point people to God instead of pointing to yourself or the strength of your own flesh. Third point, we should walk humbly with God. Walk humbly with God. Uh, We're just going to look at verses 43 and 44 here as we look at the idea of walking humbly with God. Verses 43 and 44. 
Um, before I read those verses, I just want to read a C.S. Lewis quote. I think this is so helpful. Uh, we passed out a book by Keller years ago, uh, the, the Blessing of Self-Forgetfulness, and he quotes C.S. Lewis a lot. Um, this comes from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's a great chapter on pride, where he talks about pride versus humility. Uh, when I was going over my sermon with the staff the other day, my administrator was reading this quote, and I was like, that sounds really familiar. That sounds really good. I should go look that up. And I went and I pulled out my mere Christianity and it's all outlined. I was like, okay, I've outlined that one before. This is a good one. So here it is. I'm so old now. I forget things I used to know. Um, So this is C.S. Lewis on humility. You ready? Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about a really humble person is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the trick of humility, right? We're, we're pointing to God. We're not even pointing to ourselves. We're loving God and we're loving others. If we meet someone that's truly humble, they're going to make us think of God and they're going to make us feel cared for, right? They're going to love God and they're going to love us. That's what a humble person does. I love this quote. A humble person is not a greasy, smarmy person. That's a great description, right? It's not about saying, oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm so small. Oh, I'm so awful, right? You're just like, Like, don't even think about yourself. Point people to God. Care for people in the moment. That's what humility looks like. So verse 43, let's contrast this with the Pharisees. Verse 43 and 44. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. This would have horrified the Pharisees because they were all about ceremonial cleanliness, right? And so being close to dead bones would make them ceremonially unclean. They wanted to symbolize their cleanness. They wouldn't get close to that. He's saying, you yourself are like an object that makes people dirty. You actually infect people with your evil. You think you're clean, and people accidentally get more unclean spiritually when they're around you. But what are you Pharisees obsessed with? You're obsessed with the greetings and the best seats the being recognized and being seen. Saying that's not humility. Contrast that with Micah 6.8. Walk humbly with God. The problem with humility is that we tend to uh, focus on it in such a way that we pat ourselves on the back when we've achieved it in any way. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Years ago, a friend gave me a humility plaque. Um, It was a really beautiful plaque. I have a picture of it here. I still have it. It says, the essence of humility, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4.10. It's true. It's biblical. Problem is like, can I put that up on my wall? You know, can I be like, hey, check out my humility plaque, right? <laughs> Look at that. Uh, so I decided I, I need this. I need to be reminded, right? But I put it in my bathroom. I have a little private bathroom off my office, just sits over my toilet. And it's just a reminder for, you know, a reminder for me every time. 
I go in there. Humility's funny that way. I, I heard a, a story about a pastor named H.I. Ironside, um, and Ironside was struggling with feeling proud, and he was confessing this to a friend. Again, we talk about join a group, be in real honest Christian relationships where you can pray for each other. His friend had an idea to help him with this humility, and his friend was like, hey, I know your church is not into this kind of thing, so you should try this, and it'll help you to be humble. He said, uh, why don't you wear a sandwich board, which has some Bible verses on it, and you can walk around downtown Chicago with a sandwich board that's like, turn and trust Jesus, right? And walk around downtown Chicago. Nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't Ironside's style, right? Wasn't the kind of thing he did. He was pastor of a large, important church, and he did you know, thoughtful preaching, teaching from sermons, didn't walk around with sandwich boards very often. He's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. So he walked around downtown Chicago with a sandwich board. Uh, he was down in one of the wealthiest business districts of Chicago, uh, and so people made fun of him and laughed at him and pointed at him and stared at him. At the end of the day, he got home, took it off, and was just kind of like, ah, you know, long day. Felt like it had really taught him some humility. And he thought to himself, man, I don't think there's any other pastor in Chicago that'd be willing to do what I just did today. <laughs> and if you don't get the irony, he was just patting himself on the back for being so humble, Right? Another way this is said is the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps what? Have you ever heard this before? Keeps crawling off the altar. It's a reference to Romans chapter 12 that says we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Here's the beautiful thing. That actually gives us the recipe of hope. Romans 12 gives us a daily practice. It's not a once in a lifetime practice. It's a daily practice to offer our bodies continually as living sacrifices because we will keep crawling off the altar. And here's the thing. It says we do it because of God's mercy. Romans 12 says because of God's mercy, because of God's grace, because of everything that Romans taught in chapters 1 through 11, because of his grace and the gospel and Jesus, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Because of that, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And then walking in humility looks like just doing that again and again. Just saying, Jesus loves me, so I'm going to try to serve other people. Jesus loves me, so I'm going to offer myself. Jesus loves me, so I'm going to serve someone else. Then he gives this, this beautiful recipe for what that can look like in your life. He says, don't be haughty, don't be proud. He says, associate with the lowly, associate those, with those who are struggling. A good diagnostic question for you and for me is, have we constructed our life in such a way that we're never even in contact with broken people? That can happen a lot, right? Like you might've grown up in a rough place. You might've grown up in a hard place and you're like, man, I just got to get away from the hard people and the difficult people, right? But God says, no, because I came into your rough neighborhood, because I moved down and gave myself for you, I want you to give yourself to others. Maybe he's not telling you to move back to the place you're from, but, but you should have broken people in your life. Again, you're not, you're not fixing every broken person in every place all the time, no matter what. He's just saying, do you, do you associate with the lowly? Do you associate with the broken and the hurting? There in Romans 12, it says to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. To live in harmony with one another, right? It gives us some practical steps. It's a beautiful passage to show us what it looks like to walk in humility with others. A big part of Romans chapter 12 is using our gifts to serve others in the body of Christ. So that's the thing we talk about again and again here at the church, to serve on a team. 
that's not just something we need so that we can achieve our corporate goals, right? That actually helps you and me grow as disciples of Jesus. When we serve others, we're apprenticing to Jesus. We're doing hard things, and we'll sometimes not feel like it, or sometimes not feel smart enough, or sometimes not feel strong enough, and that helps us again and again to keep going back to God's grace and say, Jesus, help me. I can't do this. Will you help me? Will you empower me? Will you teach me as we serve others? Find ways to serve, whether it be in the nursery or the elementary ministry or their welcome team. It may just be your neighbor, as I talked about before. It may just be the little old lady across the street, but find a way to serve others in the name of Jesus. We'll, we'll wrap up here. I've gone too long. Uh, verse 52, he says, what are you experts in the law? Because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you've hindered those who are entering. So from then on, they kept trying to trap him more and more. He says, you've got the key, but you've taken it away. You're closing the door on the kingdom. You're not letting people in, right? The keys have always been God's word. And in Matthew chapter 16, we're told very specifically, not just God's word in the big picture, but it's Jesus himself. The confession of Jesus is Lord. That's the key to the kingdom. Do you want to point people to God and open the door to the kingdom? Or do you want to close the door? The idea is if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you lift up Jesus more than anything else, then, then you got the key and you're going to be pointing people to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We pray that you would lead us back to yourself again and again. Lord, that we would be living sacrifices because of your mercy. That we would see how good you are, we would relish your grace, and then we would point others to it. Like one poor beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. Father, we pray that as you work through us, you continue to teach us that you're enough. And as we know that you're enough, we can be secure in you and we can share that joy with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.